Hello, dear patrons. Welcome back. This is the continuation of our conversation with Wolfgang Strake. Here is Phil asking Wolfgang whether neoliberalism is over or is ending. So on that point of the larger structural questions beneath the culture wars and the fluidity, I wanted to turn to talk a little bit about capitalism as a system as a whole. And one of the current debates on the left and one we've been involved in and indeed have debated amongst ourselves and we disagreed on amongst the three of us is exactly what's happening to neoliberalism. So we've argued on the pod about this. Um, so that we've seen, we're seeing the return of industrial policy, or certainly debates around industrial policy, trade wars. Yeah. Um, the Biden administration has kept the Trump tariff regimes. There's renationalization ongoing. I mean, yeah. it feels like almost daily now in the UK. And obviously, there's the extended, expanded role of the state during the pandemic. So, does this point towards the end of neoliberalism as a state policy? Um, and we're wondering what your view is. Is neoliberalism over? And if it is, what comes next? I mean, first of all, I think I like the way you put this in in terms of um, um, neoliberalism as a state policy. It always was a state policy. Uh, It was one way uh, of uh, responding uh, to the, uh, to use an old-fashioned expression, to the external contradictions uh, of uh, capitalist uh, progress. Oh. Yeah. Uh, now, the, the, these means uh, are adaptable uh, to the uh, reality of of the of the contradictions, uh, and and in that sense, my interest would rather be in what is the future of uh, of capitalism rather than the future of neoliberalism as far as the neoliberal the neoliberal doctrine yeah. and the neoliberal practice is concerned um, there we observe two uh, uh, strong currents one is uh, all over the world uh, people have begun to protest against uh, neoliberal government policy it didn't necessarily result in electoral majorities. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the yellow vests uh, on the streets of France uh, were an enormously, had an enormous important uh, uh, impact on, on, on French politics, e- even though they never got elected to the French parliament. Yeah. Uh, Corbyn did, I think. Uh, uh, they defeated Corbyn. Uh, uh, but uh, the memory lingers. Yeah. yeah. And many of the policies, I mean, if, are effect, de facto being adopted by the Tories. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and look, look, look at Italy. Salvini is, not, is now out of the government. But, but the Salvini issues are being touched uh, with great deli- delicacy yeah. uh, because people know the thing can, can, can come back. So, so the concern about the stability of the political classes of these countries is so uh, Im- important that they are quite willing to think about different ways of treating the uh, contradictions of capitalism uh, other than uh, those following neoliberal doctrine. And this extends, that's the second strand, this extends into uh, uh, macroeconomics and the uh, 
economic wisdom of central banks and, and international organizations. I, I have the benefit of being a little older than most people now. And, and I remember all these economists who 15 years ago would have told us that uh, uh, you can't have that, you can't do this, you can't, you, you, you can't that because <laughs> you need austerity. Yeah. Now suddenly 90% of them uh, sort of uh, are absolute devotees uh, of Madame Lagarde and 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 her uh, ilk, uh, who who now begin to uh, to talk about central banks becoming uh, the agents of uh, climate uh, change uh, po policy, yeah. uh, and basically running the economies and taking over from the fiscal policies of of, of countries that that have not been uh, su successful enough. Yeah. So so then I wonder what does that mean? Yeah. And and uh, one can obviously say, I mean, this is what I think. The the uh, uh, the neoliberal cure has not uh, worked, and you you can see it also in the area of international uh, re relations, where uh, the the World Trade Organization is in shambles, where where TTIP uh, was was abandoned, where all these international yeah. uh, agreements sort of died off, and nobody wants to revive them. But now, I think more than something that also was in the air, but but more than uh, more than before, the the uh, economic policy is migrating into monetary um, policy, yeah. uh, quite quite adequate uh, to the financialization of of capitalism, uh, which uh, which now is trying out all sorts of ways of keeping people. Sort of quiet and 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 happy by promising them green bonds and and, and all of this stuff. My impression, Max Cizan word on this is that there will be a new name for it, but it won't last forever either, be, yep. <laughs> because mm -hmm. there is no uh, uh, one uh, formula uh, that can put the uh, uh, the conflict. In a society to rest, where uh, ninety-five percent uh, have to be persuaded uh, to re re reduce themselves to cost uh, factors yeah. in the calculations uh, of the five percent uh, yeah. who uh, increase their capital in uh, in order to have more capital for the purpose of increasing their capital even more. Yeah. yeah, this is so internally, <laughs> internally impossible that you need the brightest and the and the best uh, to invent formulas uh, to prevent this from from breaking down, and and even if those formulas last only for thirty years, uh, then then you have to uh, again uh, lots of Harvard Business School uh, graduates mm. who, who who come out to tell you uh, how to handle the new problem. So you. And you would say we're improvising our way out of neoliberalism yeah. into something else. Yeah. 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 That's the, the, and, and basically I would, I would, I would suggest that we as political economists sort of uh, use the concept of improvisation more often oh, uh, yeah. be, be, because, because uh, policy in this world is not the execution of a rational blueprint. Yeah. Uh, we, people may not even know what the real problem is. 
they, they only sense that there's some, something in the air. There, there's something strange going on that you still need to understand. And, 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 then they, and then the skill of a politician is to project to voters that they have everything under control. Where they don't have everything other under control, they only pretend to do so. Mm-hmm. And, and then they do something and they hope they solve one problem and these are problems not in the in the base these are problems with the with the uh, acceptance uh, uh, the 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 acquiescence of uh, people in the population yeah. you know? the acquiescence problem they yeah. solve one problem mm. after the other in the hope that not too many problems come up at the same time yes. because then they can't handle them we call about we talk about a dilemma a dilemma is two horns yeah and and these yeah. two horns the, the politician sees the guy the, the the beast with the two horns coming and then he handles the one horn and, yeah. and and hopes that he's not going to be hit by the other horn yeah and once he handled the, the one horn he turns to the other without knowing that the first horn has already grown again Yeah. yeah, that's what you call a dilemma, and and this is a very good, very useful uh, uh, concept, and and it it sort of describes the reality of uh, policymakers much better than this intellectual uh, uh, sort of total distortion uh, of their being intelligent people who have a view of of, of everything, and they can explain uh, uh, to the policymakers what they have to do, and then they do it. Oh, that's very good. And I'm glad uh, that you've also shifted our attention to the longer term, um, and as well as the, the contradictions and the necessary improvisation that it implies um, or demands of politicians. So with that in mind, what do you see uh, legitimation looking like if we're moving beyond neoliberalism? If I can ask you to speculate a bit, what are the bases of that? Um, I mean, do you think that might be just a, off the top of my head, even, uh, you know, a turn towards universal basic income, perhaps, uh, as one form? Um, or do you think that the, the constraints are too, are too great even for that? Yeah, I think, I think uh, um, there's, there's one other sort of general principle that, that I've learned to, to respect. That is that, that history uh, can work only uh, with the material that history herself has produced. Yeah. So uh, if you have a, a sort of a acquisitional uh, lifestyle in a society, like you need to have in a capitalist society, then it is very hard to convince people of a basic, uh, a guarantee, of, a, of a guaranteed basic income. Yeah. That, that, that goes against the grain of, of the life experience of a very, very large number of people. Uh, so what 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 I think is the if you, the, I have a sort of more tongue in cheek version of a guaranteed basic income in a uh, in a financialized uh, capitalist world, which is this: uh, George Soros has one uh, once very intelligently suggested that uh, states should sell uh, uh, bonds um, for uh, to, uh, to for, for public debt. Uh, that r- never run out. You, th- th- that should never. Th- they never need to be 100 years or 150 years. Yeah? 
Now, now that uh, is very attractive from the perspective of the state, uh, be, because this moment when you have to uh, repay uh, a, a tranche of uh, of bond, and you have to take up the same amount in in uh, uh, in, in new debt. These are critical moments, and and they sort of the rolling over of the, of that takes takes place all the time, and you depend on interest rates and so on. If, but if you have this very long term bond, then you create a class uh, of people, including their children and and grandchildren, who who derive every month or every year, sort of a, a, a small percentage of the money that their father or ancestor has lent, quote unquote, to the state. Yeah? And these people would actually have a guaranteed basic income, yeah? if, especially if the bonds are... And, and isn't that, uh, isn't that an, a concept of a guaranteed basic income that fits very nicely into financialized uh, uh, capitalism? Yeah? Um, so... If, if your father had a lot of money, uh, see, see the, the, the good thing about debt from the, from the perspective of, of the capitalist is that basically if uh, the state wouldn't borrow from you, uh, the state would have to tax you. And, and the money that you hand to the state in, the, in terms of, uh, of credit, sort of would, you, you would hand to the state in terms of taxes. The, in the latter case, you would lose it and, and you, couldn't in, you couldn't inherit it, uh, pass it on to your, to your children. Whereas if, if you uh, give the state money in the form of credit rather than taxes, uh, the, the income distribution and the wealth distribution of the society uh, changes in your favor and in the favor of your, your children. Yeah? And so, so that's one thing. The, 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 we have to... Uh, we have to think more about uh, social policy uh, in terms of uh, a financialized e economy where economic uh, where profits are made uh, through uh, financial operations rather than material production mm. uh, and and then uh, things like uh, pensions yeah, uh, come up it also what also comes up, and, 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 and that's, I think, extremely important, is that if at any moment uh, a government or political parties would want to think about, uh, uh, the, the, let's say, capital controls or uh, expropriation above a certain level of, uh, uh, of, of, of capital ownership, and you only begin to discuss this, uh, what would happen tomorrow? The, the good stuff would disappear. It would go somewhere else. So, so uh, mind you that in the European Union, in the union treaties, you, you find that uh, the members of the, of the union will never uh, impose uh, capital controls, will never impede the free uh, movement of capital uh, uh, across their borders. Oh, okay, that's an integrated capital market. But then there's another provision right following this, which is that the European Union will also not allow um, uh, capital controls for capital flows uh, across their external borders. 
Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in Britain, you could now, if you wanted to, you could do this. We couldn't even do this. And, and, and I think uh, uh, that creates a new kind of power uh, or, or emphasizes a kind of power relationship that may be much more useful uh, to the owners of, uh, of, of capital than uh, Tony Blair or uh, Gerhard Schröder telling their people that the time of uh, the protective welfare state are over and they now have to get uh, up yeah. off their butts and uh, uh, work hard. So <laughs> I suppose this takes us to um, a final question, Wolfgang, which is, um, I guess, to summarize, uh, if I perhaps uh, summarize um, what I understand you've been saying over the course of our discussion. Um, you've emphasized the, despite the volatility and the, um, the coalition building that's going to happen um, and uh, all the changes in the surface of German politics, you've emphasized the continuity and the stability. And even with respect to neoliberalism, it seems you, you expect certain kind of fundamental features, particularly in the Eurozone to endure for some time. So, does that mean, so essentially you see um, stability, I suppose, overall stability being maintained. Um, yeah, make, make a qualification, and, and that yeah. is, I also see resistance. Now, now the, the form of resistance, uh, you do not necessarily observe in Germany, be, be, because it is sort of uh, stuffed with, uh, uh, with money and, and SUVs and, 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 and all of this. Yeah. But you find it in other countries uh, on, on the margins of, of, this, uh, of this zone. Uh, the, the, what we learned from the Marxist tradition, uh, also from the Polanian tradition, is that uh, uh, any process of uh, yeah, exploitation, oligarchization, or whatever, will come with resistance that has to be bought out or suppressed. Yeah? And, yeah. And, and then you can ask the question, the costs of suppressing resistance, are they increasing? Mm. My, my, do you I think suspect so? they are. Yeah. yeah. And then comes the moment when the costs of keeping capitalism going uh, begin to uh, exceed the benefits of, of capitalism. And, and um, maybe only for the ruling classes, but, but, but that's enough. So I, I would say that in the American case, uh, the benefits of the American empire for the workers in the, in the, middle, in the Midwest, in, in the United States, were pretty high in the first uh, two or three decades or two decades after the Second World War. But then they began to decline uh, in the same way in which the benefits of empire uh, on the part of bankers, uh, especially, uh, began to uh, go to the sky. Yeah? Uh, and uh, uh, this disparity may be uh, inherent in any uh, uh, imperial uh, arrangement, uh, which then results in a moment in which the discontent uh, of those uh, who, uh, who see their uh, profit uh, <laughs> declining 
become so strong that they vote for uh, Donald Trump or whoever the Donald Trump will be. And that is a, is a pretty enormous disruption uh, of, the, of, the, of, of the game, in the same way in which Marine Le Pen would be a, a pretty enormous disruption for the French game. Yeah. Uh, or Salvini in, 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 in Italy. So, no, this is peripheral now. In, in the peripheries anyway, the peripheries, the, the center has to help the political classes of the peripheries to always have enough resources, maybe uh, money, maybe even uh, uh, guns, yeah? to have enough resources to fight uh, the uh, discontent with the imperial arrangement uh, on behalf of the empire. Latin America is full of, of, this, of this arrangement, Central America anyway, yeah, full of this arrangement. Uh, so so then, then <laughs> it's an open question, but I think you're, you're asking the right question. Very good. Um, well, that's what we aim to do. Um, and thank you, Wolfgang, for, for joining us with, on this. Um, fascinating, as always. And it's actually left me a little bit more hopeful uh, than I came into it, with, which, is, which is always nice. Um, so thank you very much once again, Wolfgang, for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, so it's just the three of us now doing a very brief after party, uh, brilliant stuff as usual, uh, talking to Wolfgang Trick. One thing that really struck me was there right towards the end that uh, his point about the center and especially somewhere like Germany, which is prosperous and still, I guess, equal enough that it is undisturbed by the need to channel culture wars or to foment culture wars and to, to, to channel discontent into culture wars, um, whereas the situation is different on the periphery. And but this applies both to the European periphery as well as the global periphery and semi-periphery. And he mentioned Latin America there, where uh, uprisings are more common, discontent is much more naked, and the need for suppression much greater. And so in some ways, the role of the center is to export even the means of force to, to, to for that sort of repression in, in the periphery. I thought that was pretty interesting. I thought, I mean, I suppose the it was interesting to hear about how Schultz cracked down on an attempt to kind of uh, introduce culture wars to the German election. That was interesting, I thought, particularly that it was done from, from this um, intensely centrist um, political leadership. So presumably the calculation was they had no benefit. They saw no benefit in it. Whereas an Anglo-American politician, I think, would be all over it, whether from the left yeah. or the right. So that was interesting. Well, though Biden, it's, it's, though Biden himself has tried to kind of tone down the culture war stuff as well. So it's not... I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, they're big, only because they've institutionalized so much of the mm. of uh, the left's fixations. You know, I mean, the 1619 project is basically state-sponsored in by the Biden administration. Yeah, so I mean, there's a general question as to whether the center is is um, the right place from which to, to fight a culture war. You, you know, you, you need a bit more, bit more polarization. Get those um, takes as as spicy as possible. I mean, I, I, yeah, not not too much to add. I think it was a very rich and wide-ranging discussion. I mean, the French-German tandem that um, that he described it did make me think of the Simpsons episode where. Uh, where <clears throat> Mr. Burns and Smithers go go on the, on the tandem, and I will leave listeners to decide which of um, which one is which in terms of uh, um, France and Germany and uh, Mr. Burns and Smithers. Um, <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like Macron is definitely a, a Smithers. I, I mean, just that's just my feeling. I don't know. 
um, he likes the older the... he likes the older kind so there's... well i think it's more the countries than than the individual um, leaders but you can you can imagine a, i guess a photo a photo shoot with schultz and, um, and macron um but yeah they might may may not be on a, on a tandem um but yeah i think that the, the point around improvisation like are we improvising our way out of neoliberalism that was um, that was a lot of food for thought because i think the you know the the economic governance point around whether we're we're out of neoliberalism i think is a really a really important one because you can have all of the kind of you know the move towards state expenditure investment and is is that the is the end is the junking of austerity the same thing as moving out of neoliberalism but the point that he made about the uncoordinated aspects of policy making that that was you know i think very well very well put and we tend to underplay that kind of just the but they don't know what they're doing. They're just improvising, um, yeah. and then post post hoc kind of putting a, a a policy name on it. It's important as well because I mean that was in fact the way the neoliberalism emerged. So it was a something that was kind of improvised and experimented with. And the Ted, I mean the Heath government, the Tory government in yeah. the seventies that preceded Thatcher, experimented with monetarist policies that were defeated by they were defeated by the miners. Their attempts to impose neoliberalism avant la lettre, so to so to speak. And so it had to become more ideological in order to succeed once they kind of blundered and stumbled into into this policy. Um, which was intended to rewrite the the basis of capitalist rule. So, I mean, I think it, yeah, the improvisation thing, I think, is uh, is very important to bear in mind in in the whole debate. Yeah, well, and especially because, however much capitalist elites might want to continue with the neoliberal accumulation regime, the imperatives of legitimation, on the other hand, kind of run against that. So, there's a need to turn away from neoliberalism, both in terms of like the way in politicians discourse they justify themselves you know just saying oh we're gonna have more competition we're gonna set business free uh doesn't really appeal very much just like on electoral grounds but also perhaps more fundamentally uh they have been shaken um perhaps not so much in germany as we learned but it, but elsewhere uh by uh, by by kind of in, in one form or another some form of populist insurgencies and therefore the need for legitimation kind of has to be or something that ends up coming in to counterbalance whatever uh, the economic management might be, I think. And I think maybe that's a way to, to think about it, right? To, the need to balance accumulation and legitimation. Yeah, well put. Um, but yeah, I guess I'd, I'd, I would, yeah, have to take what he said seriously, given that I think I've probably been the one most strongly arguing that uh, neoliberalism is, is not over the three of us and, and uh, definitely drawing on lots, lots of strengths ideas in, in making that argument. So to take under advice that's you told what he said. <laughs> <laughs> well uh, as i said take under under advisement what he uh, what he said on this on this particular topic but no great to have him in back on and um, some some cr cracking lines in in there as well within the, the discussion that i will be uh, repeating at, at dinner parties to make myself <laughs> very good well we should return to this question of of the end of neoliberalism and we should maybe debate that and uh, put out the terms clearly on what we mean about that, but also, and I think one final point, and that Strake was completely right to draw our attention to, is that that 
might be of some intellectual interest. It might be of some political importance, but the real important one is where's capitalism going more than where neoliberalism is going and how much road does it have left to run? Uh, so that's it from us for now. I hope you uh, enjoyed this. This has been an out of series one. In the meantime, we're going to be continuing on with our series on generations, generational consciousness, and generational conflict. Okay, Boonger, the problem of generations. That's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.